Dr. Ben Abbott, today's guest, is an assistant professor in the Environmental Science and Sustainability Program at BYU. He works with a team of students and postdocs to understand sustainability, including research on the shrinking Great Salt Lake. He'll share insights about his work and his superpower. I'm your host, Devin Thorpe. Welcome to the Superpowers for Good show, where we empower you. Dr. Abbott. Ben, thank you very, very much for being here with me today. It's a thrill to connect. Thank you so much, Devin. Likewise for me. Well, you know, uh, the, the Great Salt Lake is something that uh, I have cared about uh, for a long time. I have, you know, I, I'm embarrassed to admit that my first memory of the Great Salt Lake involved taking the old train out to the lake you've only heard about that right uh, from old people now now I, I am i am young enough to say that i did that literally as a five-year-old uh the train was long gone by the time i was a teenager uh, most of my friends didn't do it but i have the recollection anyway um yeah I care deeply about the Great Salt Lake, and uh, you have been doing some of the most important work there at BYU in terms of research and driving some of the thought around what needs to happen. And there's a lot going on, uh, prayers for rain and snow that uh, have been answered. I mean, uh, I think this is the wettest winter maybe on record in utah tell tell us about the situation i I should stop talking and setting the stage why don't you set the stage because you're the expert but let's have a conversation about the lake yeah the uh the great salt lake is what we call a keystone ecosystem so a lot of things depend on that lake being there and that's really different than what many people think about the lake because it's salty water Right. And if, if you're thinking about, are we able to drink it? Are we able to irrigate land with it? Well, it's not, it's not useful for that. But actually these salt lake systems are, are incredibly important to human health, human economy, as well as the broader ecosystem. And I think it's actually helpful to just take 30 seconds to, to look at the global view because there are about 120 of these salt lake systems throughout the world. Um, Great Salt Lake is the largest in North America, and globally, they are all in decline, except for the few in in Antarctica, where there's not a direct human footprint in their watershed. And so this uh, we've lost about 60% of global saline lake area, and this has caused some of the largest ecological catastrophes that, that we have faced so far, the destruction of the Aral Sea and Lake Ermia in the Middle East, um, the disappearance of Owens Lake in California. Um, so th- th- I just, I like to start with that view. We're thinking about Great Salt Lake because we live here or we've read about it in the national media, but this is actually a, a global issue. Um, Great Salt Lake uh, naturally fluctuates. It goes up and down because there's no outlet to the ocean. But what we've seen over the last hundred years is a, a very steep decline, uh, a decrease in the water level. And this is driven overwhelmingly by by one thing, extractive human water use. 
So we divert water, not primarily from the rivers that are flowing to Great Salt Lake. And then we use that water mainly for agriculture, but also for outdoor um, vegetation like lawns and, and trees in urban areas. And then we do extract some water directly from Great Salt Lake to, to um, take out minerals that are used for everything from manufacturing our laptops and uh, cars to um, fertilizing the, the fruit trees that we depend on. So the uh, I, I was asked the other day, um, hey, why didn't why didn't you tell us about Great Salt Lake earlier? You know, you're just telling us now ah, we're using too much water. But of course, there have been hundreds of reports and uh, researchers and managers and concerned citizens talking about this for for at least um, 50 years and, and likely much longer. So we're in this situation. We're using more water than we have sustainably available. And that is causing the decline of this really important ecosystem, the Great Salt Lake. As you uh, do this work, um, what are the key drivers? Uh, it seems to me it, it's easy to blame climate change for everything. Uh, I am prone to doing that, right? Uh, and, you know, there are a lot of us in that climate community that want to blame COVID on climate, <laughs> you know, all kinds of connections, some yep. of which are more tenuous. Is climate change a factor? And uh, if so, how big a factor? You, you talk about usage. We ought to talk about, get, drill down on that a little bit more. Yep. Too. But let's start with the climate change question. Yeah, there there um, was a really interesting dialogue in the scientific community a few years ago um, about this phenomenon called climatization, where everything that goes wrong is because of climate change. Now, we, we should start out by acknowledging, as you said, in the Earth system, everything is connected. It's one of our only ecological laws. Um, and so certainly when you change something as fundamental as climate, when you disrupt and destabilize the climate, that's going to have impacts on everything. But uh, there's a, a researcher named Michael Wine who's done kind of the pioneering work on um, the, the effects of local water use and climate change on Great Salt Lake and other uh, terminal lake basins. And he he estimates in this case that Climate change is probably only playing a five to fifteen percent role in causing the decline of Great Salt Lake. Now you turn the temperature up, there's more evaporation from the lake, and then it also takes more water to provide the same services in the watershed to grow crops. Um, but in this case, we're talking about local overuse of water. That's um, that's accounting for eighty ninety percent of the decline of the lake. And that's really, really important because if it were climate change, then we would have a lot less um, ability to address this locally. Whereas because we know that it's overconsumption of water, that's something that we, all of those about 3 million people that live in the Great Salt Lake watershed, we can get together, we can uh, figure out how to it's just like a bank account, right? Bring our withdrawals down below um, the deposits and get ourselves back in the black in regards to water. Yeah. As we look at water use in the 
Great Salt Lake watershed. Um, agriculture, as you mentioned, is the biggest use of water. Uh, uh, but we tend to accept that that's a necessary thing because we all like to eat. Um, <laughs> industrial is is next. And then the, the smallest is the water that's used uh, in municipalities. Uh, but where do you see the biggest opportunities for us to address the problem? Yeah, the... Um... The, the breakdown is approximately 80-10-10. So 80% agriculture, 10% mineral extraction from the lake, 10% um, municipal water use of so the urban areas. And um, we, we estimate, you know, when we look at the historical record, what's gone on with the lake, that we need about a million acre feet more water per year that's going to Great Salt Lake. And that for most people, myself included, just a few years ago, it doesn't mean anything, right? It's a, a, an old school unit, uh, a, a foot of a foot of water over an acre of land. But to put that in context, this this is going to require about a 30 to 50 percent decrease in our water use in the watershed. So we're talking about big numbers. Big difference. Yeah. Big, big differences. I um and and so we one one very understandable human strategy is to say those cuts need to happen in a different category than what i'm involved in you know and most of us live in urban areas and we're not growing crops ourselves uh, so but but many of us do have lawns right so that's a big thing and in fact on the the urban water use side that's what we need to be focused on right reducing the area of our lawns our outdoor water use um, but we can't solve the problem just with that. So we need real changes across all three of those water uses. For example, on the industrial side, there are interesting new techniques to extract some of the high value minerals without evaporating the water. So you can get the um, lithium and maybe even the magnesium out of the water that are so important for the renewable energy transition without um, returning that water to the atmosphere. But the 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 big question is, are we going to be able to reduce agricultural water use within that range, 30 to 50%? And there is water to be had by increasing our efficiency. We call that agricultural optimization. Can we get more crop per drop of water that we're growing? Um, and I, I initially was really hopeful that that was going to get us where we needed to be. Um, just over the past few weeks, there have been some... Um, initial studies about what, how much we could expect to gain. And um, they were actually pretty sobering. You know, this is research out of Utah State University, Matt Yost and others, suggesting that we're probably only talking about 10 to 20% in, uh, increases in agricultural efficiency by upgrading from flood irrigation to sprinkler irrigation uh, by um, using precision agricultural techniques where we only put the water and fertilizers where we need them. So ag optimization, really important, but it takes a long time, right? You've got to buy all of that equipment um, and it's going to take place over several decades. Um, we also need to be thinking about short-term. We probably need decreases in acreage or some uh, targeted fallowing 
So alfalfa is, is the predominant uh, crop that is, is using water in the watershed. Uh, it's, it's also a very flexible crop, so it has some advantages. You know, you can not irrigate it for the second half of the season and get two cuttings instead of three or four. Um, that can still be profitable to the farmer. And if if we compensate the farmer, right, so pay the difference in how much less alfalfa they got, then they can still uh, be, be solvent and move forward. And so th there are, are real options. But the fear that I have, I mean, just being really frank, is that we haven't come to grips with um, with how serious an issue this is and with how hard the the solution is going to be. And so there's, I mean, I remember when, when I first started working as a teenager, kind of magical thinking, hey, I'm going to be able to buy all those CDs. I'm going to date myself here too. I'm not as old as you, Devin, but almost. Uh, <laughs> gonna, I'm still going to be able to buy these CDs even though they cost more than I'm making, right? Somehow it's going to work out. So we've got to be really clear-eyed here and ask ourselves, not only are we making a good effort, are we spending money on this, are we changing the law, but are we doing it fast enough and in profound enough way that we're actually getting water back to the lake? Because the lake responds to how much water flows into it. Doesn't yeah. It doesn't respond to the number of bills that were passed, the number of podcasts that were done on the lake, or, yeah. or even the amount of money that we spend on it. We've got to really be thinking, uh, keep keep our eye on the ball and say, you know what, our societal well-being, the health of our own bodies and our, our families and friends, 10 million migratory birds that move through here, 350 species approximately, they all depend on us solving this problem. And, 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 and nobody has cracked the code yet. You know, if we look globally, there are a few lakes that are sometimes held up, like Mono Lake in California. And that's a great story of uh, people coming together and lawsuits to protect the lake. And um, and even that, all that we did was we slowed the decline, maybe maybe stabilized the lake at a much lower level than where it would be healthy. And and so we're we're really pioneering new ground here. And that's why we can't get distracted. This this uh, amazing snow year, it's the it's the 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 um, biggest snow year on record. It's a real gift. It gives us more, um, you know, maybe a few mo uh, months more or a year more time to implement these solutions. It doesn't solve the long term deficit. You know, this is like a, a windfall profit that comes around once. Uh, and this is also where uh, climate change comes back in because we're seeing these big snow years less frequently than we used to. Um, and so this may be the the, uh, the last good snow year that we have and for the next 10 years or 15 years. And so we've, yeah. we could really easily be back where we were last year uh, just in a number of months if we don't dramatically reduce our water consumption. Yeah. It seems like one of the real painful realities is that the idea of raising water-dependent crops to feed animals in Utah might be problematic, fundamentally. Yeah. Um, is that a possibility? Is that is that really the reckoning that has to happen? If you look at 80 10 10. Uh, it sounds to me like you can't solve the problem cutting the 10 and the 10. It's got to be mm -hmm. in the 80. And the big yeah. user is alfalfa, some of which 
were shipping to faraway places. Uh, yeah. It's not even being used to feed animals that feed Utahns. Uh, yeah. How do you, how, I realize that is a fraught conversation. That is <laughs> difficult, especially when the yeah. governor is an alfalfa fa- farmer. But yeah, how do you, as you look at this as an expert, what do you think? Well, when you're in a tough situation, you got to have tough conversations. Um, and this, the same way that if you're talking with a teenager that is is uh, running their bank account dry, you got to say, okay, well, what are you spending it on? What could you cut back on? And I think that you're spot on. Um, it's about this animal agriculture question. It's really interesting to me, right? There have been people living in this watershed for probably 20,000 years. And that that means that people have been here longer than Great Salt Lake itself, right? They were here before Lake Bonneville drained and then and then dried. And they have been living really um, in harmony with the watershed until about the last hundred years. And so that includes both the indigenous peoples, the Shoshone and Ute, Paiute, Goshute, Timpanogos that were here and still are here. But it also um, is the, the early European settlers um, that arrived with the, the trappers and then later on uh, the Mormon pioneers. And they were using the water to grow local crops for local consumption. And that they were within the realm of what the ecosystem could support. It was only in the mid-1900s when we had these big federally subsidized dam projects and canal and pipeline projects that we started to overuse. And we created this artificial surplus of water, right, that nobody locally was paying for. And that encouraged overconsumption and people thinking about, okay, well, we've got the water. You've got rights to it. So I might as well grow this crop, even if it's only marginally um, uh, economic, and even if we don't need it here in the region. So I think there's a, a real lesson that that we should be thinking about. Um, there is enough to support our local activity if we're using the gifts of the earth for that purpose. If, on the other hand, we're shipping hay and alfalfa out of the state, even out of the country, then we're going to have to change that. And the, the the risk there, you know, even it, there, there are many people that don't want to that don't want to say that, and I understand, and I don't I don't judge them for that because the the risk of being so clear about okay, this this is there are going to be um, people that feel like they're losing as we make this change. Um, the risk is that you alienate some of that community, right, and make people feel really defensive and. Um, and entrenched in in the current way that they're using water. I I don't I don't think that's going to happen. I think that we actually, as a community, as as a diverse community, right? We got all these different people from all these different backgrounds. I think that we can pull together and and really trace the path forward for how to do this. And it's still there are going to be hard conversations. There are going to be people that that disagree. That's really important in a crisis situation. Right. The last thing that you want is everybody kind of towing the party line and, and saying the same thing. So um, but it, but we all need to kind of do what we can, have conversations where we can. And then I think we need to have um, both compassion and uh, a lot of support for the legislature and for the executive branches of government. Right. Where we're developing relationships, we're encouraging them 
to implement these long-term water conservation measures and also saying, hey, what are we going to do to bring our water use down into a sustainable level? What can we do to support you in that? Because agriculture has, um, you know, they've been here a really long time and they're a really important part of our community. Um, and so they've got a lot of, of connections and power. We shouldn't resent that or say, ah, oh, I can't believe that they um, that they're influential in that way, but we've got to figure out a way to work with them. And I think that there are pathways forward. Yeah. Now, I want to ask, because you are one of the few people in the world who probably have some pretty good answers to these questions about consumer water use. Uh, so let's just assume that we're talking about a home in Salt Lake City, typical residential home in Salt Lake City. Let's let's ask the question. If, if someone in Salt Lake City uh, runs a gallon of water down the toilet, how much of that water ends up in the Great Salt Lake after yeah. it's cleaned and processed? Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a really high percentage. Around 95% of that water makes it to Great Salt Lake. And so it, it still is important to wisely use our indoor water resources. You know, that this doesn't mean that we should all go turn our tubs on and just let it run all of the time. Um, but the, the consumptive water use is happening outside. When you um, turn your sprinklers on, when you water plants outside. Uh, now, this doesn't mean that we just should have asphalt and cement everywhere. Right. There are plenty of, of local plants that are in, incredibly beautiful and diverse uh, that, that grow here just fine without irrigation. And there's a, a, a great website, uh, localscapes.com, that the state has supported saying, how can we you know, have, have uh, beautiful and enjoyable outdoor landscapes um, using the, the plants that are adapted to this climate? There's also slowtheflow.org, which is the state's program. They actually have incentives to help you transition from kind of a Western European outdoor um, landscaping that, that has been the dominant form here to a more sustainable, lower consumption um, outdoor landscape. Now, this, this year in particular, there's some real opportunities because, <laughs> you know, for those of us who've been shoveling the driveway and, and sidewalks, there's, there's a lot of water in the soil right now, and that actually is going to last for uh, several months into the summer. And so don't turn on your sprinklers. Even if you haven't changed your outdoor landscaping, um, you probably are overwatering by about a factor of two. So you might be able to reduce your water consumption, out, your outdoor water use uh, by 50% simply by only giving your plants what they need. So uh, to reduce that schedule, um, again, sl uh, slowtheflow.org has a lot of resources that are going to help you understand what, what you can do. So we, we could very easily, on the urban side, um, if we're aiming for, you know, around a 50% decrease, we can hit this with very little pain and suffering. And that's super important because it sends a signal to our agricultural community that we're, we're in this, we're serious. We're not just pointing the finger, but we're making changes. That gives us credibility. That builds solidarity and trust that we desperately need right now. Yeah. Well, uh, this is really a great conversation. I'm, I'm extremely grateful. Um, let me ask you to step back for just a minute uh, and put your work in at the around Great Salt Lake 
into the context of your broader work at BYU. Tell us about your lab and the work you're doing there more broadly so that, that everyone has an opportunity to really understand who you are. Yeah, I feel um, I feel so grateful for the amazing team uh, here at BYU. We, we are um, a group of uh, postdoctoral researchers, graduate students, and undergraduate students. There are about 30 members of our of our lab that are working together on um, e- the, our field is called ecosystem ecology. And so this it has to be the most redundant sounding field in all of science, right? How many times can you get eco in there? But we're, tr- we're trying to understand how the whole ecosystem works, the water, the carbon, the nitrogen, the people, right? We're living in an epoch called the Anthropocene, where people are the defining um, force in the earth system. And so more and more, our lab has started focusing on on these human issues. So we do a a lot of work on uh, air and water pollution, on uh, climate change solutions, on ecosystem feedbacks, and, um, and also on local habitat and conservation. So we've worked uh, over the past few years extensively on on Utah Lake, which was threatened by a a development proposal to build artificial islands, and then uh, more recently on on Great Salt Lake and and thinking about sustainability throughout the whole watershed. So it's it's really a privilege. I I just love coming in to work and talking with these creative um, young people and people of all ages from all backgrounds. Uh, There's so many good people uh, in, in the world generally. And uh, I feel privileged to work here with this group. Yeah, it, it, it is incredibly important and uh, couldn't be more timely, uh, it turns out, uh, in 2023. So I, I commend <laughs> you for the great work you're doing. Um, and it seems to me, uh, as I've read some of the, about your work, that you have uh, at least a personal, if not collective, focus on impact. How do you measure your results? Yeah, that's um, you know we need we need impact, right? We like we were talking about. We don't need another uh, scientific paper, as important as that is, right? That's how we understand things, but that's not the right metric to evaluate. Are we being successful? We try to think. Um, we've we've tried to guide ourselves, looking at what are the most important problems, what are the most pressing issues that that we're facing as as a people, and that's been a messy process. You know, it's there's not a list. You can't ask ChatGPT what's the most important thing that I should be working on. Right? It's not going to give you the right answer, and so. Um, a lot of what we do is actually reading and and listening to learn from others to understand how are these problems connected so f- for example if you if you look at um the the number one environmental issue that that I am worried about is the degradation of human health from pollution that there are 15 million premature deaths every year because of the pollution that we're creating and putting in the earth system and to put that in context, that's more deaths than all of the violence, all of the communicable diseases, all of the malnutrition globally combined. I mean, it's just, it's enormous. And that's being 
driven predominantly by our dependence on fossil fuels, our overconsumption of fossil fuels. And so as that, that might sound really basic and simple to many of you, but actually assembling the data to compare those different risk factors for, um, for death and then understanding what are the viable solutions to reduce our addiction to fossil fuels. That took years of, of, of research for, for us to understand and, and begin to uh, start engaging usefully on that. And, and so there's this real balance between we're all feeling some, some amount of eco-anxiety and fear for the future. So that can make us want to go really fast and not be, uh, you know, never compromise on any of these issues. But at the same time, we've got to have that intellectual humility to realize, wow, I just read a newspaper article on this. I'm not an expert. It's gonna, I've got, I've got to dig deeper before I start criticizing other people about this. Now, the, I, I think, may, if, if there's a single superpower uh, that that our group has, it's collaboration. You know, because when we can think about, this isn't about gaining a a relative advantage over a competitor. It's not about increasing my the number of scientific publications. It's about moving us toward a solution to these issues. Then everybody is, we're all on the same side, right? When somebody else has a big breakthrough in renewable energy or in agricultural optimization, you celebrate that, right? It's like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. This, this is moving us where we need to go. So that idea of focusing on the problem and then um, trying to engage with um with humility and uh, open mind and open heart. That's, that's what we're, we're trying to do though. We certainly don't always succeed. Yeah. yeah it, it's uh, it reminds me of uh, an old aphorism that the real substance of humility is being teachable. And so you've drawn right. that connection there without using that phrase, but uh, very, very powerful. Um, you alluded to the fact that your group superpower is collaboration, which is uh, my favorite superpower, uh, perhaps. But uh, what is your superpower? Hmm. You know, uh, we've there been, we've had some really hard times over the past few years. Uh, I, we engaged on, um, the COVID-19 public health crisis, the pandemic, and it was really discouraging to see the scientific community was trying to get as good information as we could out there. Um, it was largely not, um, not, not understood and not implemented by, by, um, some officials, by some legislators and, and even the, uh, the governor's office. And that was really discouraging discouraging, right? Um, but then I realized, and, and and we talked about this at length, hey, it's not, it, it isn't about us. And it's not whether um, our report was taken seriously, or if our, if we got credit for the change that was made, it's again, focusing on the solving the problem. And so I think that there, it's been a real gift and I don't know exactly where this comes from, but being able to realize that it's not about me personally and whether we succeed or fail, that's, that's bigger than any one of us. What we're called to do is, um, is to help as we can um, and, and move forward. And when you take yourself, 
you know, when you try to decenter the the ego, it becomes a lot easier to take setbacks and criticisms or personal attacks because you're like, oh, that's <laughs> those things are just affecting my personal reputation or um, things like that. Uh, likewise, with Utah Lake, I, I got personally sued for three million dollars for the education uh, and research work that we were doing, and um, that was really destabilizing, <laughs> you know, to have my, my yes, livelihood so. oh. threatened. But the, but again, I, I felt really supported thinking about, Hey, this is, this is really about the lake. And this is of course, disruptive to me and my family for a short period of time, but it may be a step toward uh, permanent protection and better management of the lake. And I believe ultimately it was. So reducing reducing the ego and and thinking about um what does the community need i've actually found to be incredibly uh nourishing and and motivating um so that yeah that's sorry that was a long way of answering Kevin, <laughs> yeah. but uh... but, I, but i think what you're saying is and i sometimes hate this label uh because no one would ever say this but in a way you're saying humility is your superpower uh <laughs> because you're able to put the needs of others ahead of your own needs put outcomes ahead of credit etc cetera, etc cetera. You know, like the old saying uh, attributed to just about every president who's dead uh, <laughs> that, uh it doesn't matter who uh, gets the, you know if you don't you can get a lot more done if you don't care who gets the credit uh, right uh, yeah and, uh -huh. uh, so um, yeah and that's 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 a great way to say it. I'm I'm basically the most humble person you've ever met. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know that that might be. Here's a, here's another thing, Devin. I think it is so important to to enjoy and to 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 laugh and connect and that that that's a part of this collaboration idea it's if you're carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders and it's just grinding you down guess what that's not helping the world and that's not helping you personally right because you're not going to be in a place that you can have the energy and desire and passion to to engage and so being open to unexpected relationships and conversations, uh, being able to see the the beauty in everything around us. There is so there is so much beauty. There's so many reasons to be hopeful about the future and to really work for it. Um, hope comes from action, I believe. When I, when I sit at home and look at these numbers for the you know, two to 8,000 premature deaths due to air pollution just here in Utah. You know, that's 10 times as many people as die in all car accidents. That that can be that can be crushing. Um, when instead we're thinking about, hey, who can who can I talk with? Hey, there's this clean air caucus in the legislature that's working on this issue. They really care about this issue. Bipartisan. That that's where the hope comes in. You you start to believe that we can make a difference and. And it does, you know, I've seen time and time again, an undergraduate student with very little experience, identify um, what needs to be done and then figure out a creative way uh, to, to, to move things forward. Now, there, there, none of them, myself included, have ever completely solved one of these issues, but we're pushing, you know, I actually love for my, my religion, we have this metaphor of put your shoulder to the wheel. And there's this big wagon that we're trying to move forward. Um, 
we can't do it on our own, but let's all put our shoulder to the wheel and try to try to move it forward. And it's and it's fun. And you sing and you laugh. Uh, and so that's and 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 you're of course a great example of this as well. Yeah, well, you're yeah. Uh, but let's um let me ask one final question about this idea of your superpower and humility and you're willing to uh, put the outcomes and the impacts ahead of your own need for credit. What uh, what would you coach, say your students, you coach them all the time. How do you coach them to emulate you in this way? And I know you would never describe it as emulating yourself. You're too humble for that. But if you're coaching them to do this, how do you coach yeah. them to do it? Um, thank you for that question. I when I talk with with students at any stage, right? Because we have we have students who are um, 70 years old here at the university. It's really cool to see all this diversity background. But um, if you're coming from a place of fear where you're really worried um, that it's going to be hard to find a, a, a place to put your shoulder to the wheel, that it's going to be hard to carve out a little spot for you to benefit, then, then you usually end up in uh, a suboptimal profession or area. Now, I don't... Every profession is needed, right? And so it's not that the profession itself is suboptimal, but the match between the person and their interests and gifts and what they're doing is a match. Now, um, a lot of that fear comes from this focus or this, this unhelpful belief that you've got to specialize early. You've got to decide what you're going to do and stick with it your whole life so you can get ahead of other people. Um, you know, there was that, um, book about outliers. You got to spend 10,000 hours working on this thing. Well, I actually, I really like the idea of late, late specialization of taking the time to understand yourself, to understand the system and figure out where you can, um, where you can contribute. That takes time, but it all, it takes faith as well. You've got to be able to suspend that fear, that voice of doubt that's telling you that there's not going to be an opportunity for you. If you say no to this thing over here, this bird in hand, then you're not, never going to get any of those birds in the bush, right? So ha having that faith moving forward, identifying the problems that matter, and then figuring out a way big or small that you can contribute to them, um, that that leads to the biggest impact, I, I believe. Yeah. Well, I am uh, grateful for your uh, powerful insights. Um, as we wrap up now, I wonder if you would take just a minute and tell people how they can learn more about your work. And, and if you've, to the extent you, I know you've published stuff on the Great Salt Lake and because that was the focus of our attention, perhaps you can tell people how to track those papers down. Uh, maybe yeah. you can take a minute to, to tell people how to connect with you on social media. If you're open to a uh, a yeah. more direct contact, tell them how to do that in a way that's uh, conducive to your work and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. The, um, that, as you were asking that question, Devin, it, it just triggered another thought in, in my mind uh, again. It, and it's about this fear and scarcity versus thinking about problems. Um, there's some labs here on campus and elsewhere that say, Hey, you've got to, 
apply and you got to meet these certain standards to participate. We we run our lab differently. We have a completely open lab, not only for BYU students, but for anyone in the community that is interested in getting involved because these problems are big and we need we need you. I mean we need we need everyone um because you're going to be able to reach people that aren't going to listen to me as because of my background and the way that I talk and other things. So um so if if people are interested our website is uh, ben Abbott, B-E-N-A-B-B-O-T-T dot B-Y-U dot E-D-U. That's our lab's website. It's got a join um, tab where you can get involved. Uh, we've got a, just a uh, kind of an email list where we send out information and a weekly lab meeting specific to Great Salt Lake issues. Uh, we wrote this report that's at GSL for Great Salt Lake, GSL dot B-Y-U dot E-D-U. And uh, we tried to keep that focused on how are we going to get water to the lake, but we also tried to link to the many reports that have been done before. Um, now, if you see things that are confusing or um, di distracting in that report, we're always open to that feedback as well. So reach out. And my, uh, I'm on Twitter at Thermocarst. <laughs> Thermo, it's a permafrost term from uh, from another area of our research, but. Uh, just search Ben Abbott and and it should come okay. up. But <laughs> and we'll put some we links in the show notes too. We'll we'll we'll, yeah. we'll write this up and uh, put this in the show notes so people can uh, track it down. But Ben, thank Thanks, you Devin. so much for joining us today. It's been a thrill to connect. You know, the protecting the Great Salt Lake is uh, to, as you point out, a model for solving so many environmental problems. Yeah. It. Uh, it, it is acute, it is urgent, it requires immediate action. And if you can find the model for doing that in Utah to save the Great Salt Lake, uh, it's a model in a broader sense for solving climate change for the planet. So yeah. we wish you every single possible victory and success in the great work that you're doing. Thank you so much, Devin. And th th thank you, everyone who's who's listening to this. Please do reach out with your feedback and uh, let's all put our shoulder to the wheel. All righty, let's do some good. Thank you for tuning in to the Superpowers for Good show. Twice each week, we host changemakers who share their impact, insights, and superpowers. Don't miss another episode. Subscribe today at superpowersforgood.com. That's superpowers, number four, Good. Dot com. Be super empowered. Get your copy of the book, Superpowers for Good, as an ebook, audiobook, paperback, or hardcover edition via your favorite online retailer. Interested in having me speak to your company, organization, or association? Visit devonthorpe.com. Then let's talk. Now, keep using your superpowers for good. Together, we can reverse climate change, improve global health, and eradicate poverty.